0: voice for our teaching ministry so grateful for you serving us tonight today thank you thank you thank you. all right good morning Renew Church how are you this morning all right in light of it being five years are you excited yeah okay you don't seem excited let's all stand can we all stand right now and because I'm a pastor here I get to I get to do this all right Uh, I'm gonna ask you a question Renew Church if you've been here a while you know what the question is I'm gonna ask you do you know what time it is And then you, of course, it's five years. We're five years old, okay? You are gonna say it's happy family time. We've been family for five years, okay? And so you're gonna say it's happy family time. And then if we could just go around and really just encourage, renew one another, right? In our encouragement and our love for one. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, if we can do that, I think that would go a long way. Amen? Amen? All right, so do you know what time it is? Oh, we could do better than that. Do you know what time it is? All right, let's go around and let's really encourage one another. Just say something encouraging. Give each other a hug, a hearty handshake. If we can get out of our rows, out of our seats, just for a moment. All right, if we could come back to our seats. It's always good to share. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Hey, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, and uh, we're going to get right into the message today. Uh, All of us at one time or another have taken an exam, right? Maybe you're taking one, you know, this week or next week even. You're in college or you're in grad school, but all of us have taken an exam. So I want to ask, have you ever taken an exam and in taking it, learned something completely unexpected, Okay. If you've ever taken an exam, have you ever taken one and learned something completely unexpected? And I don't mean knowing the facts of the exam, but maybe you learned something new. Or maybe you learned something about yourself. Or maybe you learned a life lesson. I don't know if you're a teacher, but in teaching somebody, maybe the student taught you something that was totally appropriate, something totally mind-boggling, something about yourself. Maybe a life lesson. I wanted to share with you, um, and I've probably shared this too much, but in college, my one passion was Taekwondo, okay? And that's Korean martial arts. Have I ever told you that I used to do that? (laughs) All right, I talk about it all the time. Those were my glory years. And I I was very good at it, okay? Did I tell you that before? Okay. (laughs) And so I was really good at fighting and sparring and doing all that. And I was so good that I would actually really, I was driven. to to be better, and I would go to tournaments throughout the South, okay? And I would enter mixed martial art type of (coughs) tournaments. You you remember the 80s Karate Kid kind of thing? You know, I would go to those kind of tournaments, and I would go all throughout the South, and I would come back always with a trophy. You know, I I would, because I was pretty good, okay? And I became so passionate about it, because we're always passionate about the thing that we're really good at, Uh, that I decided, you know what, I am going to really take it to another level. I'm going to uh, find an Olympic Taekwondo coach, okay? Now, I didn't know if you knew this, but Taekwondo is in the Olympics. It started in 1988, and it gained a following, and it's really, really pretty intense. It's pretty awesome. Olympic-style Taekwondo, you wear the, the helmets, you wear the chest protectors, and it's not uncommon to knock people out, and it's so fun when you knock somebody out. And I love doing that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to find a great instructor. So I found a well-known instructor for Olympic Taekwondo. His name was Master Yoon. And I can recall going into his office, and I told him, and at the time I was a blue belt, which is a higher belt. You can fight red belts, black belts. You can do all that stuff. So I was a blue belt. And I came in, and I said, I want him to be my teacher i never forget this. He's, he's a little bit like Mr. Miyagi, a little bit, little bit like that. And so he, he would tell me, oh, he goes, I don't know you're a, you're a blue belt. And I said, well, I have a blue belt right here, right? And I have my certification. He goes, no, 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 I do not know you're a blue belt. He said, this Saturday is belt testing, okay? I want you to come, and I want you to just go through the testing, and I will decide, right, what belts you, you, that you need. And that, that put a lot of stress on me, right? but I was very confident, I thought, oh, that's kind of cool, and so I actually was excited. He said, but come wearing white belt, okay, because I do not know if you are blue belt. You wear white belt, so I remember that Saturday I came, okay, and I was wearing a white belt. I hadn't worn a white belt in so long, and I thought it was so weird coming in, and I hung out with the other white belts, okay, and if you know anything about belt testing and you know about the white belts, on exam days, the white belts are the most nervous, OK? Because they've never done it. I've done it for years, but they've never done it before. And so they're nervous. They only know one form, a basic form. They only have one kick that they know. It's that you know, front kick. They don't even do that very well, OK? And <coughs> suddenly, being around white belts, I felt supremely confident, right? As a matter of fact, I decided to condescend to help the white belts because they don't know that I'm an undercover blue belt, right? That I'm a champion and everything. And so I started to help them, right? And I befriended a white belt named Mario, who's uh, he's a Pacific, he looked like a Pacific Islander, big 200-pound guy. Uh, he was, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe Samoan, maybe Tongan, but he was a big guy and he was a really nice guy, but he was nervous like every other white belt because he only knew that one kick, right? That front kick. And I remember, you know, uh, I was helping him with his form, helping him. Well, finally, the time came for the white belts to spar. And this is what I was excited about. Because Master Yoon was going to watch me, right? And he was going to decide what belt, right? If I get a green belt, if I get a purple, if I get a blue belt. And I was really, like, I didn't want to go revert back, right? I wanted to get a blue belt. Or maybe he'd give me higher. Seeing how awesome I was, maybe he'd give me a red belt or a black belt. And so I remember uh, I was paired with Mario, you know? And here we are, and they say, you know, you know, and they say, which means start, right? And the minute they did that, I was not looking at Mario. I was looking at the back. Master Yoon was sitting there with his arms folded, and he had other black belts, and I was like, I need to impress him, right? So right away, I, I, start, I don't even put my hands up I put them, and Olympic Taekwondo guys, really good guys, always put their hands on their sides, okay? They don't even put their hands up. They're so awesome, right? And so I would do that. I would switch back and forth, like one of those awesome guys. And the minute they said start, I did as many aerial kicks as I could. I did jump, spin, hook kicks, jump, spin, heel kicks. I did, you know, uh, a jump, uh, 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 cock kicks. I did axe kicks. Everything that a black belt would do, I started to do. And I would come this close to the guy's face. I wouldn't even hit him. He had all this stuff on. But I wanted to show how precise I was. I wasn't even thinking about him, right? I was looking in the back saying, oh, maybe I'll get a black belt, right? And as I was doing this, Mario, he's just getting nervous because, you know, the the feet are coming at him but not hitting him and stuff. And so this big Samoan guy, he decides, I'm going to kick, okay? And he only knows that one kick, but he doesn't even snap his foot. I don't remember what happened, but when I did my aerial kick and came down, he decided to do that front kick. He didn't even snap his foot. He just like a tree trunk, just just wham, right between my legs, right? And I I know, I know. And, And I remember flying up in the air, and I remember coming down, and it was the worst pain I'd ever felt. It was excruciating pain. And I started to realize something. I forgot to put on my armor. I forgot to put on, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> that one thing that would have re- alleviated all that pain, okay? I had worn my, my uh, helmet. I would worn my chest protector. I would worn my sh- everything to protect me. But that one piece, right, <laughs> that I was supposed to, as an upper belt, know to wear, but did I forget or was I too cocky? Which was probably both, right? But here's my point. That day, I had been Mario's teacher, yet this student taught me a life lesson about arrogance. He taught me a life lesson about overconfidence in myself and underestimating my opponent. That day, on exam day, I almost failed, all right, because I learned, I I, I really couldn't continue, it was that bad, and I learned a life lesson, right? Well, what what do I mean by this? Well, the title of my message this morning is Jesus on Exam Day. Because in this passage, we're going to see Jesus being tested by the religious leaders of Israel. But I want you to see that Jesus is not the student. Rather, he turns the table on these would-be teachers, and they're caught off guard, just like I was caught off guard. They're surprised, just like I was surprised. It is the religious leaders who became the students. It's the religious leaders who learned a life lesson. And here, Jesus teaches them spiritual truths from God's word, lessons that I really believe we, uh, his disciples should learn as well in our everyday lives. Because my desire for you this morning, and Renew has turned five years of age. Some of you have been here from the beginning. Some of you have just gotten here. Wherever you are, I want you to experience spiritual revival. You know, revival means a spirit-filled life. It's a life that's led and renewed by the Holy Spirit. It's a life that's sold out and on fire for the things of God. G.I. Packer, one of my heroes, says it this way, revival is God's anointing on his people where he touches their hearts, deepening and maturing his work of grace and power in their lives. A.W. Tozer, another one of my heroes, says, revival is the work of the Holy Spirit where he produces extraordinary people who are filled and saturated with God To accomplish his work here on this earth and that's my desire that you are so filled that you are so saturated with God that you can be successes here on this world the way God defines success so what we want to do is we want to look at truths that will help us live a life of revival so Matthew chapter 22 let's do a little bit of review just to refresh our memories if you're taking notes you can write these things We've been studying that it's the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry before his crucifixion and resurrection. And here Jesus has been ministering for three and a half years. He's been preaching and prophesying, teaching and healing and serving. And because of these three and a half years here on this earth, two things had resulted. Number one, the crowds love Jesus. They love what he says. They love what he does. In Matthew chapter 21, the previous chapter When Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowds yell, Hosanna to the son of David. They go wild. They throw palm branches in front of him. Why? Because they believe he's the Messiah. They want to follow him. But on the other end of the spectrum, the crowds love him, but the religious leaders hate Jesus. They hate him because he doesn't support their systems. He provokes their rituals and traditions. He pushes back on the things that they want to that they want to uh, incorporate, he warns the crowds. Uh, Pastor Wilson has done a great job the past couple weeks uh, talking about the parable of the evil tenants. We know that it's about them, and also the parable of the evil servant. We know it's about them—disobedient, negligent, you know, uh, not wanting to follow the ways or the things of God. And so this infuriates the religious leaders. They are motivated to rele- <coughs> to erase. <coughs> Jesus is a threat they want to arrest him and kill him but the crowds hail Jesus as Messiah and so they fear the crowd's reaction so here's what they do they devise a plan to trap him they test him with a series of three questions designed to catch him in his words so their exam is de- designed to fail Jesus epically fail and here we see the first one Can we look at it? The first exam. We look at it, it's on politics. This is the political question. Let's look in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So I want you to notice (coughs) two groups of (coughs) religious leaders, excuse me. The first are the Pharisees. We've studied them. (coughs) They are the most popular of the religious leaders in Israel. The Pharisees were the Bible teachers in the synagogues, right? They were the ones that were with the people all the time. They were kind of the model of what it meant to be a leader. They were strict. They were legalistic. We've studied this already, because the Pharisees saw themselves as the epitome of the righteous, faithful people of God, and they despised Roman rule. They thought that uh, the pagan nation, uh, pagan nation, exercising pagan laws over God's people was just disgusting, right? It made their stomachs turn. And so, thank you so much. And so they dreamed of a theological, theocratic, uh, political uh, rule by the Messiah. On the other hand, we see the Herodians, okay? And they were named for their support of Herod and the Roman government. You see, the Herodians were the leaders that had hitched themselves to the prevailing powers And so they were awarded wealth and influence and power. And so the Herodians enthusiastically supported King Herod and worked to further the political regime and success of Rome for their self-interest. So I want you to note something. Both these groups, the Bible says, came together. These groups were natural enemies. They were natural opponents. They had absolutely opposing ideologies. You couldn't even get them in the same room together, yet they were working together to destroy Jesus. This emphasizes the hatred that they have. They would unite together against Jesus, their common enemy. Verse 16, and they said, "'Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity "'and that you teach the way of God "'in accordance with the truth. "'You aren't swayed by men "'because you pay no, no attention.'" who they are they're buttering him up right and let me say it this way the teachers watched game tape on jesus if i can use a sports cliche right jesus wasn't like any other rabbi jesus like all the other like all the other rabbis didn't quote someone else all the rabbis quoted other people their traditions their (coughs) their famous men but yet jesus the bible says spoke by his own authority as a matter of fact, we studied that before. The crowds were amazed because Jesus spoke with his authority, right? And so Jesus didn't quote Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Akiba. No, he wouldn't even refer to the Mishnah. When you ask Jesus a question, he declared it with his own authority. And so here, the, the religious leaders realized that if they could trick Jesus into saying something by his own authority— maybe something unpopular or inappropriate or blasphemous or seditious, he would put his stamp of authority and they could destroy him. None of the traditions, none of the teachers would be on his side and they could isolate him all alone. And so this is what they do. Verse 17, let's look at it. They say, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This was an absolutely loaded question. This tax was referring to the poll tax, okay? P-O-L-L, not P-O-L-E, okay, poll tax. In 6 AD, Rome instituted a census, right? Caesar Augustus did this to everyone in the empire. If you've heard the the Christmas story or you know the nativity, you know that this is true, right? So that every year, uh, so that that year, excuse me, uh, people had to come to a designated area to be counted and to pay a poll or a people, poll meaning people, right? People tax. And it was very steep for every person, right? So in 6 AD, a leader named Judas the Galilean responded to a Caesar's tax. And by the way, he's the founder of the Zealots, right? That, that freedom-fighting arm of Israel, the outlaws to Rome, as it were. Judas the Galilean then declared it unlawful for Jews to pay the Roman poll tax, And he taught that God alone was ruler in Israel, and it was sinful to allow pagan law to govern. And so what he did was he led a revolt against the census and against the tax imposed by Rome. And Rome responded by brutally crushing the rebellion, and they crucified everyone who was openly opposed to the tax. So think about this. This is not very long ago. And this question was still a sore spot among the Jewish people because they remembered their family and their friends who were crucified because of this. So here the people longed for a Messiah that would come and conquer Rome. They believed Rome was anti-God. They believed it was a pagan power. And so they wanted their king to come and establish a political kingdom and to destroy the ungodly rule of Rome, which meant no more ungodly tax. Let me ask you a question. Who did the people believe Jesus to be? Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. You see, where where Judas of Galilee failed, Jesus of Galilee would succeed. The Messiah would come and he would abolish those things. Do you see why this question is so loaded? If Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay the tax, then Rome would brand him an insurrectionist and crucify him. If Jesus says, yes, we should pay the tax, then he would alienate the people who long for a Messiah to establish his kingdom. Verse 18, let's look what Jesus does. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He knows, he knows their reason. (coughs) And here he turns the table on them. Verse 19, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Verse 20, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Verse 21, Caesar's, they replied. So Jesus asked them, whose image is on this coin? See, in ancient culture, the person who makes the money owns the money. If your face is on the coin, it's yours. The image of the coin shows ownership. And so Jesus tells them, Tiberius Caesar is on that coin. He made it. He owns it. You're a part of that society. You should pay it. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Let's look. Give to Caesar, verse 20, what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When we read this, sometimes we think that Jesus is just being a statesman, right? And anytime a statesman gets in a jam, they use words, word magic, right? Equivocation or fluff or turning stuff around to, to get out of this jam. And so we're so inclined right, to that, that we think that's what Jesus is doing, but that's not what he's doing. There's a profound spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching. You see, the image on the coin is Caesar's. It's his. Pay him. It belongs to him. But here's what Jesus is saying. But what belongs to God? What are the things that are God's? You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, whose image do we see on man and woman? Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible says, and they were so aware of this being teachers, right, that we are all made in God's image. So whose image, Jesus is saying, do you see on this coin? It's God's. It belongs to him. You see, Jesus turns the tables and he administers the test, the test of commitment. And he asks, is it right for God to expect commitment to him, lock, stock, and barrel, for his will, for his plan, and for his purpose? Are you giving God what is rightfully his? And Christian, I want to ask you this morning, what is it that God wants from you right now in your life? Maybe some of you, you've heard the gospel, and salvation is something that you're thinking through. And, you were, and God is saying to you right now, Will you commit to me your life? Will you commit to the gospel? Will you become a child of God, right? Maybe right now you have careers and dreams and aspirations that you want to happen, and you feel like, oh, if I commit to God, God's going to just, you know, totally ruin it, totally destroy it, right? He's going to make me some missionary in Mongolia, and I'll be sad, right? And God is telling you, what is it that you expect? Will you uh, commit to me, lock, stock, and barrel, even your careers, dreams, and aspirations? Maybe there's a past sin that you cannot uh, let go of. It's an addiction or it's something that is, that is close to you. Maybe it's a past uh, uh, sin that, that you feel. And you, you and, and, and Pastor Wilson has been, you know, had shared this in his sermon. It's kind of a closet, you know, where you'll give Jesus everything else, but that closet, oh, man, you know, it's yours. Or maybe it's a present a pain that, that you're feeling right now that you haven't forgiven. It's a bitterness that you, that you hold on to, a resentment that you will not let go of. And Jesus wants that in your life. You see, what is that thing? What are those areas that spiritual revival needs to result? Because spiritual revival cannot be experienced without, without, without a wholehearted commitment to God and the things of God. Amen? You know, it's interesting that both the Pharisees and the Herodians, although they had completely different ideologies, both believed one fundamental thing, that revival would happen through political means. And some of us, we bought into that as well, right? We live in our culture, our culture is a culture of activism. And so we believe as Christians, if we just were more active in uh, causes and, it, and, and certain things. I'm not saying those things are wrong, but we put all of our lock, stock, and barrel on those things. And we need to understand that political activism has never brought true transformation. World peace has never come and will never come through political policies. Moral change won't happen through political programs. A perfect society won't happen through man's maneuverings. Here, Jesus, as he, uh, as he speaks to the religious leaders says that the only way revival can occur, the only way that God is instituted is when we surrender our lives to God in his kingdom. Isn't that the gospel? Amen. Let's look at the the second exam. The second exam is on theology. It's a theological question, if you're taking notes. Verse 23. (coughs) That same day, the Pharisees who were there, uh, who says that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Here, let's look at the third group, the Sadducees. These were the privileged class of leaders. They were the priestly class. Most all of them were, fair, uh, were Sadducees because they controlled the temple. And we've studied and will study people like Annas and Caiaphas, right? These were the Sadducees. If the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of their time, the Sadducees were the liberals of their time. They were the learned intellectuals. They uh, believed that only Torah, the first five books of Moses, was God's word because they thought the other stuff was was just ridiculous right and and they held to that and because of that they didn't believe in the resurrection or in the rest of the bible is authoritative they didn't believe in an idea like the resurrection it was ridiculous to them that was a later edition that, that they came up with and so they came up with a convoluted story to discredit Jesus let's look in verse 24 and they said teacher Moses told us that if a man dies without having children His brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. And the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? That kind of sounds like a bunch of ivory tower mumbo-jumbo, doesn't it? It's so convoluted, right? But they ask this question because they want Jesus to stumble at it. Hey, can I share with you? I'm gonna give you a confession. Uh, Pastor Wilson was setting um, the the sermon schedule, and he actually set these three as separate ones. But in my arrogance, I just said, just give them all to me, you know? So I asked for all of them because I wanted to tie it together this way. And so I really agonized over, because I I didn't have enough time And so I was going crazy trying to put this together. So all that to say that I'm not going to explain this, okay? All right? Sorry. I'm not going to explain it because I was, you know, overconfident. That's my sin. That's my problem, okay? And so we were supposed to do this. I feel bad. So I can't teach all the intricacies of this question, but we're going to look at one angle of this exam, okay? One angle, and that's it. Verse 29, let's look at it. And Jesus replied, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will not be <coughs> like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus expertly uses the Torah to teach the resurrection that they questioned him on. And here's my, what, what I want to look at. Okay, Sorry, I, I can't go into it in detail. My desire is to look at that one angle of this exam. And here is where Jesus teaches a profound spiritual truth, verse 29. And Jesus replied, "You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God." What were the Pharisees, what was the Pharisees' problem? Well, Jesus says, "They don't know the word of God." But how can you say this? They were the PhDs of Israel's leadership. They were the specialists. They studied in fellowships they meticulously studied the bible that's what they did so why did jesus say you don't know the scriptures the word "know" here has the idea of submission it has the idea of submission okay i'm gonna ask for a show of hands how many of here of you here this is church right how many of you here believe the bible is absolute truth would you raise your hand okay i won't judge you if you don't but yeah yeah i'm, I'm pretty sure everybody's gonna raise their hand right because the Bible says that it's absolute truth. All, all Scripture is God-breathed, right? It's effective because it's, uh, it's absolute truth. Now, I'm not going to ask you to uh, uh, lift up your hands for this, but I want you to think about this. Those of you that said that you believe Bible, the Bible is absolute truth, how many of you live out the Bible as your absolute authority? Oh, see, there's a difference. There's a difference between acknowledging the Bible as absolute truth and living it out as the absolute authority of your life and that's the intention of the word of god that it is the absolute authority It's the authority by which you filter all other things the sadducees may know a lot about god's word but jesus is saying that they have never submitted themselves to its authority in their lives i have a macbook how many of you have a macbook raise your hand how many of you are proud macbook owners okay great great i have a macbook i'm so technologically illiterate those of you that know me you know this But on my MacBook, I have a trash icon, okay? And when I get spam or junk mail or emails that I don't like, I send it to the trash. Yeah, and it makes that sound, and I love it. It is therapeutic for me, like I I get a scam email, and man, I wanna, so And it just, oh, it feels so good to get rid of it, right? I love that sound, right? I have an iPhone. How many of you have an iPhone, your pride iPhone? Okay, great, great, right? You have that same trash icon on your iPhone. And so when somebody sends you a text you don't like, when Wilson sends me a text about something I need to do, wah, 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 you know? I get rid of it, right? I'm just joking, I don't. But I get rid of, like, you know, things that I don't want, texts or different things. I totally do that. That is what the Sadducees <coughs> did with the Word of God. They know God's Word. It was something that God had given them. It was email. It was text but it was something that but if it was something they didn't like or they didn't want to deal with if it seemed too anti-intellectual like the resurrection wah, 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 you know if it seemed unpalatable like the judgment of god something that no you know civilized person would hold to wah, 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 throw it in the trash they refused to deal with it in their lives and what does jesus say what does jesus say because they don't know god's word verse 29 You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You see, scriptures equals the power of God. You cannot see the power of God if you're not in submission to the word of God. And so how many of us were practical Sadducees? How many of us? We know that God is sickened by apathy and lukewarmness. Revelation says it. But we have not submitted to actually living disciplined Christian life focusing on spiritual growth. We're not striving to be holy. We still live like baby Christians, Hebrews says, where we're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We're still a spiritual infant requiring milk and not the meat of God's word. The Bible says that we, uh, we know that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but still we have not submitted to forsaking addictions like pornography or drunkenness or abusing our bodies because we know it, but we haven't submitted to its absolute authority. We know Jesus' great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, but we still have not surrendered to making the gospel the priority. And this church is so big on programs, on different things that can get you to really apply this to your life, but you don't do it because you're still living a selfish, self-focused life, and you're not serving, you're not sharing, you're not discipling. If you're not obeying the word of God, then how in the world will you see the power of God on your life? Because revival is experienced through submission to God's word. And here Jesus turns the tables. He administers the test, the test of submission. Are you surrendering to the word of God daily in your life? The third point we want to look at is the exam on the law. It is a legal question. Let's look in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus has silenced the Sadducees, The Pharisees got together. Verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with his question. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now here we see a scribe. And a scribe was an expert in Old Testament laws, right? You've seen in uh, different translations, a lawyer. Well, this is what they mean, an expert in the law, okay? And here, the scribe's expertise was to interpret the law and its many rules and regulations, so the scribe, their job was to number the laws in the Old Testament, and they numbered them to 613 rules. If you can imagine, right, 365 rules were negative commands, 248 were positive commands. That's what Jesus was talking about, where they dump rules upon people that they can't even breathe, right? Here, the scribes were a part of that, and the scribe here comes to test Jesus with a question, which is the greatest of all of these 613 commandments, okay? Now, the question doesn't seem as hostile or as loaded as the previous questions. As a matter of fact, Mark's gospel shares that this was an honest question uh, that was given by the scribe. He wanted to know because he wanted to know what kind of person he was dealing with. He wanted to know if Jesus was really insightful. Jesus was profound. Jesus was from God. And here's how Jesus replies. I love this. Verse uh, 37. And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul With all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here, Jesus teaches a profound spiritual truth. He talks about the motivation behind the laws. What is your motivation for doing the things that you do, for living the way that you do? Motivations are so important. I believe there are four main motivations. One is the motivation of fear. Fear is an extremely strong motivation, right? Think about the fear of failure. If I don't study, then I will fail, right? Then I won't graduate, and I'll get kicked out of school, right, and many, because of the fear of failure, study for classes that they hate. It's a very strong thing. How about the fear of missing out? We call it FOMO, right? I'm kind of cool, because I know that, right, FOMO, (laughs) right? My parents, no joke, because I'm Korean, when I was young, they used to tell me, if you don't study, you can't go to a good school. You can't go to Haberder or de, right? You can't go to those schools, right? And if you can't get into UCLA, right, then what will happen is you can't find a beautiful woman to want to be your wife. That's what I had heard, right? And because you can't find a beautiful woman to be your wife, you're not going to have money either, and you won't be able to go to Hawaii on vacation, right? And you're probably homeless. I remember my mom, you're probably homeless. So (laughs) don't study equals homelessness. And I remember the fear of missing out made me study when I was younger. It's a strong motivator. The fear of loss, the fear of punishment. Fear is a strong motivator. Number two, duty. Duty appeals to our character. We can do things out of a strong sense of responsibility. We want people to admire us and respect us and adore us. We want to be seen as virtuous, industrious, successful. And so duty is a strong motivator to get us to do the things that we do. Another one is reward. This is a big one because it appeals to our appetite for acquisition because we want more things. Or it appeals to our appetite for ambition because we want more fame or status or influence. And so if I work hard enough, it's going to pay off. If I work hard, there's going to be a windfall. If I work hard, I'll get that influence, that power that I crave so deeply, right? Uh, That that is definitely a strong motivator. And then the fourth motivator is love. And I really believe that's the greatest motivator of all. And Jesus pretty much says it. Think about it. How do you perform when you genuinely care about something? What do you do when you are passionate about someone? You know, how... How are you you invested in that thing when you're deeply delighting in it? How do you live when your affections are placed on someone? That's why Jesus says, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Loving that way will get us to do things a certain way, right? It'll get us to live a certain way. When we're driven by fear, and that's a strong motivator, we become resentful. We live a life that's unsure or insecure or full of doubts. We become resentful. When we are driven by duty, we become religious. We check off boxes. We become legalistic and self-righteous and puffed up with arrogance. When we're driven by rewards, we become reactionary. We respond to God how he responds to us. We respond to people and how they treat us. We become transactional in the things that we do, right? But when we look at the religious leaders, their motivation was everything but love, fear of people. And you know, next week, you're going to hear more about uh, particular religious leaders, their fear of people. The, they they mo- were motivated by the rewards given to them, by their duty and how they look in public. And Jesus says these motivations led them into hypocrisy. Okay? And again, hypocrisy is just a fancy word for acting. That outwardly you're one way, but inwardly you're another way. That your outward doesn't match your inward, right? And that's hypocrisy. The religious leaders were motivated by everything else, fear, rewards, duty. And they weren't motivated by the one thing that would keep them from hypocrisy. And Jesus administers the test of motivation. Are you loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind? Is that the totality? And out of that, are you loving others? Are you loving the people around you? See, if you're motivated by love for God and through that, love for people, and you love God and people with the totality of who you are, hypocrisy cannot exist there, amen? Hypocrisy will not be there. And that's the kind of relationship that brings revival. I know I've gone a pretty long time, but would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I just wanna ask this question as we pray in the stillness and quietness of your hearts. My desire for me and for you is to live a life of revival, spirit-filled and God-empowered. Here are my questions. Are you giving God what is rightfully his? Lock, stock, and barrel. Are you submitting to the word of God daily surrendering to that authority in your life? Are you motivated by love in all your relationships, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Father, we thank you that you love us enough to give you, to give us this love letter, that if we would follow it, if we would live by it, that we could live lives that we would not be ashamed of, that we would live lives that would bring honor and glory to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do its work as your word of God was disseminated. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.